0: So, so this week we, um, we continue with our, our series on the life of David um, and looking at how David's life experiences are experiences that we can draw on even in this um, 20th century lives that we live that we can draw on and how that can influence our lives and the decisions that we make in our lives. We're looking at some of the stories that made David the, the patriarch of the faith that he is. And we look at what some of the things are that made Yahweh describe David as a man after his own heart. Um, and so um, I thought this evening we, we couldn't not look at probably one of the most famous stories of David, and that's David and Goliath. In our, in our first look two weeks ago, oh yes, thanks for so much for last week. Your input into the EMI engagement was so invaluable. Just hearing from you guys, um, and you guys sharing with us what it is that you felt um, was really important for us in our journey was so helpful. Thank you very much for that. So in our, in our first look two weeks ago, we, we saw how David's, Um, anointing and his call taught us something about how we ought to see, in contrast with how the default perspective of the current culture we live in now sees. And seeing as God sees is seeing that, seeing in a way that gives us hope. Um, Because if we only ever Judged books by their covers, um, we wouldn't have much of a library, would we? And so today we're gonna take another look at a at this well-known story of David, and it shows David as the hero, David as the champion, the one who makes the difference. So there's this well-known story of of David and Goliath. Now, now one of the things. About reading a story or a text, a, part of, a portion of scripture that we've read before, or uh, we've heard this story before, is that we often think, "Ah, we know this so well. I don't think there's anything more that this that this reading or this story can teach me where I'm at now." But I want to encourage you to to stay engaged because um, the Holy Spirit has this way of showing us something new in the midst of something that is already familiar. He is somehow able to do that. We're going to read all of it. Um, it's 1 Samuel chapter 17. There's 50 odd verses. That's a lot. So even at the end, if I do a terrible job of exposing some of the 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 goal that is in this, at the very least, we would have read um, a really good portion of scripture, and you would be able to leave here saying, nah, we, we engaged with something meaty. So I'm going to give a very quick outline of the whole passage, and then we're going we're gonna to read through it. So, um, so a Philistine army is attacking Israel. David's elder brothers have joined the men of Israel in the fight. The Philistines have a trump card in their champion Goliath, and then David takes him on when nobody else would. And then the Springboks beat England. <laughs> okay, that's that's next week. I like that prophetic speech. Did you hear that, Alison? <laughs> Amen. We're on the right path. Okay, there's lots to read. Um, let's go. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. They pitched camps at Ephes Damim between Soko and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another, with the valley between them. As we go through this, if there is something that you find engaging, or maybe there's a question that you have, or there's something you'd like to throw in, you are welcome to do so, okay? Maybe just raise your hand, and I'll stop, and we'll, and we'll listen to the wisdom that you have to share. So the Philistines, at this point in time, they were the biggest enemies of the Kingdom of Israel. And they were a very sophisticated people, um, because what they did was they controlled the trade routes along the ocean here. Now if you go further south, the Suez Canal is somewhere down here as you enter into Egypt, As you go further north, it becomes the Mediterranean Basin. So there's a lot of trade happening within this space here. And the Philistines were a a seagoing, seafaring people, and they had situated themselves along this this coastline. And so because they had this, a lot of interaction with neighboring countries and nations, they were quite advanced in their metalwork, in their industry, and in their trade. And what they wanted to do in this text, what we're reading here, is that they wanted to occupy the highland here, in this section here. And what they were trying to do in moving across from there was to kind of cut cut Israel in half and then isolate sections of it so that they could gain control. That's what it seems like they were trying to do. And um, the, the kingdom of Israel was still led by Saul then. And Saul hears about this army that's coming into, onto the land. And Saul brings his army down from the mountains where they were here. He brings them down to the valley of Elah and he sets up camp there. And so um, this place, this is an image, a picture of what it looks like today if you went there. This is the valley of Elah, and um, Saul and his army would have been set up on this hill here, and the Philistines would have been set up on the far side over there. Also, just to note, in the middle there is the stream where David collected his stones. Um, Also, just interesting, the Philistines occupy a section of, of land that today is Gaza. So, some people think that there is a connection between um, Philistine and Palestine, but that's a lengthy debate for another day. Okay, so so that's some background about about who the Philistines were. Um, From verse 4, a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze, weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves, and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield-bearer went ahead of him. Now, what I notice when you read through this is just how much detail he's giving. He's describing here what this Philistine giant looked like um, and how well-equipped they were. At this time, the the um, the Israelites were still using leather um, for armor, but here comes these people who have metal for armor. Um, and we notice there just the... the the, the emphasis that the writer who was, was, was writing this places on, on, on those particular facts. We can see there how tall he was, just under three meters. Um, and an average size sho- soldier is 172, which is like somewhere here. So this guy, was, he was big. He was big. So if you convert that into kilograms, it's somewhere in the region of 65 kilograms. So one of, I'm sure, one, some of the ladies here are kind of in that way. So <laughs> it's kind of like Kirk's way. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, it's, it's heavy. Um, and so this, this um, yeah, thanks for that. <laughs> so it's quite, quite heavy. Let's get going from verse eighty. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day... I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. So these two armies, they are on those opposite hills that we saw there in that, in that earlier picture, and they're facing each other, and neither of them feel that they can run out and charge and attack the other because if you do that, what you need to do is you need to go down the mountain that you are on into the valley and then up again the mountain on on the other side. And so what you would do is you would leave yourself exposed without having the high ground advantage, which anyone who has... Um, who has experience in, in, um, in that kind of thing would know that you want to have the high ground advantage, besides the fact that you would be exhausted by the time you arrive on the other end. And so, finally, to, to break this deadlock, um, the Philistines send their mightiest warrior out. And he goes down into the, into the valley floor and he's looking all dazzling it must have been quite a sight to see this guy come dazzling down and he's massive and he's got 68 kilograms of armor um, on him he's got his sword his spear and he shouts out to um to the israelites to send down a warrior from them now this action that he did of himself coming down and inviting one warrior to come was actually um, a tradition in ancient warfare called single combat. Um, It was kind of like a duel where there would be a representative from each side, and it was a a way of settling disputes without incurring the bloodshed of a major battle, and so this is what he's doing. He's inviting them out, but it's, it's it's not an appealing proposition. <clears throat> now David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time, he was very old. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The firstborn was Eliab, who we heard about in, two weeks ago. The second was Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to send his father's sheep, to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Now Jesse said to his son David, take this Ephah. Of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers, and hurry to their camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are, and bring back some assurance from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah, fighting against the Philistines. Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd loaded up and set out, as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath the Philistine Champion from Gath stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance and David heard it whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear so so David arrives having been he arrives at the at the front, having been sent by his father, and he arrives with some Roasted grain for his brothers and cheeses for the commander. And, and I get this picture of David arriving there kind of like, like Uber Eats. like he's, he's like Mr. Delivery with food. And, and while he's, he's doing his deliveries, he hears what the Philistine has to say. And, and as, he, as he goes about this, he notices the fear of his fellow countrymen. And he's taken aback by what he hears from verse 25 now the israelites had been saying do you see how this man keeps coming out he comes out to defy israel the king will give great wealth to the man who kills him he will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. David asked the men standing near him, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, This is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done? Said David, "Can't I even speak?" He turned away to someone else, and brought up the same matter, and the man answered him as before. So David arrives, like Uber Eats for asking for directions: "Is this the house? Is that the house?" But um, he, he, he tries to get details about what's happening there, and his brothers are not happy with him. And it's interesting, again, just to notice the, the detail that gets mentioned in this part of the story here. because many other stories in Scripture could just be done with one line or two or three um, lines in a verse. Now, I think it's written like this, this particular part, in a clever Hebrew way to test the reader. Remember what happened in the previous chapter that we read, in 1 Samuel 16, and it was was about um, how we see people and things, and how it challenges us to see things in a different way. And so it seems like what the author is doing here, the writer is doing, is he's probing how well we understood the message of the previous chapter. We would have learned not to look at the height and the stature of someone because that isn't the be-all and the end-all to Yahweh. It is less important to him. Because again, a lead character of the story here is someone who has become who he is because of his height. Do you see that? And so the author is trying to, he's trying to highlight that point again for us here because this, it seems like it's continuing on. And so the writer is asking here, if you kind of think and meditate on that for a bit, he's asking, in the presence and in the will of an almighty God, how do you see these men? He's asking, how do you see Goliath? How do you see Saul? How do you see David? And also interesting here as we, as we read that and as we think about what we engage with the last time, we actually see here in these few verses what Eliab's heart is actually like. Can you remember Eliab was his, David's eldest brother and when Samuel saw him, the very first thought that came into Samuel's mind was, this is the guy who's going to be king. And actually we see here what Eliab really is like. He's unreasonable, he's aggressive, he's a hater. And so we see here in a sense, we see here in a sense what Yahweh saw and what affected the choice, and the decision that Yahweh made. From verse 31, What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth." When he turned on me, I seized it by its fur, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword, Saul's sword, over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. Now as as we as we as we think about this and and just meditate on these few verses, it seems like um, Saul, who is this king who has who has himself turned Yahweh's heart against him, he is in a sense handing over responsibility. He's handing over rulership of the kingdom to David. In a sense, almost not even realizing it, because because he gives David his armor, he gives David his weaponry, and it should have been Saul, as the king of Israel, as the leader, who would go down and face Goliath. But he didn't go, he was scared, he was fearful, and so it's almost a prophetic act that is happening here, that Saul is in a sense passing this on to David and giving all of this responsibility to David. And so in this transfer of responsibility, we are also shown a shift in the engagement with God, the engagement with Yahweh, because Saul was relying on his own armor, He was relying on his own weapons, he was relying on his own warfare knowledge, but David couldn't use it because he wasn't used to those ways. And so Saul had lost touch with his relationship to Yahweh, and so he was using his own methods, and his own ways, whereas David clearly had a strong, vibrant relationship with God, leading him to a different set of actions. And so I think that's, to us there, a a lesson about how we often want to use our own ways, Um, about how we want to resort to the things that we have learned that have worked for us for years to deal with the challenges that come our way rather than believing God first and foremost to fight for us. And so this story here, this bit of the story, is also a story of great faith versus little faith. David says, I cannot go in these, he said to Saul because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand chose five smooth stones from the stream put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag and with his sling in his hand approached the Philistine. Now earlier on I showed you there in the in the Valley of Elah, there's a, there's a stream that flows through the middle of the valley that actually makes the valley very green. And so David went, and he went to the stream, and he selected five stones out of the stream. And apparently, um, according to archaeologists, the stones in the Valley of Elah are not normal stones. They are barium sulfate, which are, it's a kind of rock that is twice as dense as, as any other stones. And so, and so that these were formidable weapons that David selected there. Now, we often think, um, if I can remember back to the kind of Sunday school teaching that I had, when I read this, I thought pebbles. Didn't you think that? I thought like little stones like this. But actually in those times, the, 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 the stones that they used weren't stones, they are more like rocks. And they would be about this size. And so this size, I'll pass it around, you can feel the weight. So that's, that stone weighs about a half a kilogram. And um, so David goes out and he selects five stones and he, and he has a sling. So a few years ago, I had, um, I was doing a, a, a teaching somewhere and so I, I had the stuff to make it. I was telling Kirk I needed to put, put this one together. And so the sling would look something like this. So you stick your, mid- it has a, a loop, it's made of leather. It has a loop, you stick your middle finger through it. And then the other end has a little bit of a, it's, it's tied on the other end and so you hold it like that. You load that rock in here, and then you, you swing it around, I'm not going to do that, and you let it rip. Now, um, um, slings were in those times, they were, you can pass that around and have a look, <laughs> yeah. Don't put the rock in that thing. Um, you can do some serious damage with that thing. Um, So slings were actually well-known and well-used weapons of warfare. Um, They were not toys, Um, and they are mentioned on a number of occasions in the Old Testament, and beyond that, outside of that, there are reliefs in Europe that shows that there were actually units within armies that had what they would call slingers, and they were actually more effective than bowmen, than archers with these slings and so I think as part of this story we often misunderstand David's choice of weaponry particularly from a Western perspective because from a Western perspective when we think ballistics which is what that is in some way we think we think something else you know Um, and we think it to be completely inferior when it actually has so much potential as a weapon. And I think the, 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 the downplay of this particular weapon that David had kind of detracts a bit from the meaning behind the story, as I think we'll see a little bit later on. Slings are still used today. Um, So that there is the conflict right now in the Middle East. And so Palestinian youths still use slings today. And um, they are extremely effective. And they can do a lot of damage. (coughs) From verse 41. Meanwhile, the Philistine with his shield bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands you recognize that line from a song you recognize it's a well-known line it comes from here um, a few years ago i i read this book um, written by this guy named malcolm gladwell um, he's quite a popular author and he wrote this book entitled david and goliath underdogs misfits and the art of battling um and in the book he um he projects an idea that he has and in it he 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 communicates that he thinks goliath was not what he seemed to be and he he believed that there were all kinds of hints in the text if you pay close attention and there were these details that get mentioned in the story are things that to him seem quite puzzling, and it doesn't line up with Goliath's, imi- Goliath's image as this mighty, inconquerable warrior. And so this author, in this book, he thinks that Goliath may have had a, a, a condition, a physical condition called acromegaly. Now, acromegaly is a, it's a rare condition where the body, particularly your pituitary gland, produces too much growth hormone. And um, what it does then is that causes your body and your tissues, your bones to grow quicker and for a longer period of time. And some of the reasons that this particular author gives um, for his Um, prognosis that Goliath um, has acromegaly is that he says it seems like Goliath has poor eyesight Um, and so he needed someone to carry his shield um, which was more to him in his understanding about him being led to where he needed to be. Um, He also says that Goliath says am I dog that you should come to me with sticks sticks plural not one stick and david only had one stick he had his shepherd's staff Um, and then he also calls david to come to him um, because he wanted david to engage in close combat now if he was really this great warrior then would he have invited his enemies to come to him? What kind of great warrior does that? And then he also um, possibly was someone who moved slower as people with acromegaly um, might do, which is another symptom. Um, And I thought about this. Okay, that sounds interesting. Now, Now, some of the most famous giants that we know had acromegaly are some of these people. So there's the current world tallest man, oh sorry, who's here in the middle, his name is Sultan Kusan, he's a a Turkish farmer, that's his wife. Um, He's only 2.51 meters tall. Um, There's also, you recognize this guy, the big show, WWE, and there's um, the Great Kali, We recognize him. He also has acromegaly. And then this guy here from years ago was Andre the Giant. He really was a tall man. He was also a professional wrestler. And then this man here was called, um, also a giant, called the French Angel. He was a Frenchman. Interesting about this guy is that he is believed to be the guy who Shrek, you know, Shrek, was based on his physique. So if you Google French angel and you look at what his physique looks like, you'll see, ah, <laughs> that looks familiar. Now, now if this theory, and it's only a theory, is true, that Goliath had this condition called um, acromegaly, what do we take from that? Does it mess with our story? Does it mess with scripture? Now, for me, um, if it is true, if it has value, then it tells me that that sometimes um, an insurmountable challenge, sometimes an adversity may not be as impossible as it looks. Sometimes the challenge that we are facing The challenge itself has problems of its own. And so that challenge might not be as mighty as it seems. However, on the other hand, if Goliath was truly a mighty, powerful giant and a great warrior, and the Bible mentions the presence of giants on a number of occasions in the Old Testament, And to me, that actually makes David's victory even more amazing. And more importantly, it makes what Yahweh was able to do through David even more amazing. As it shows us what God is able to do even in our seemingly apparent weakness. When a lowly shepherd can conquer a professional warrior... On the battlefield. And that reminds me of 2nd Corinthians chapter 12 verses 9 to 11. From verse 48, as the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. I would love to have seen that. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword, drew it from its sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead was thrown along the Shaarim road to Gath and Ekron. When the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. David took the Philistines' head and brought it to Jerusalem. He put the Philistines' weapon in his own tent. As Saul watched David going out to meet the Philistines, he said to Abner, commander of the army, Abner, whose son is that young man? Abner replied, As surely as you live your majesty, I don't know. The king said, find out whose son this young man is. As soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul, with David still holding the Philistine's head. Whose son are you, young man? Saul asked him. David said, I am the son of your servant, Jesse of Bethlehem. We made it to the end. Quite a, it's quite a story, eh? Um, now, what are some of the elements that we can take from this, from this, this, um, this very um, dynamic story that describes for us this character, David? I think the first thing, oh, wait, let me ask you guys. Are there any things that stand out to you about this story? It must have been a thing, eh? I mean, to step out in front of thousands of men with nothing, with just your, and to, and to believe that that was going to be enough. Any other thoughts? Oh. Yeah. So once once David hit that square inch, <laughs> from maybe I don't know if I'm standing here. It looks like from here to where the, the doors are, that seems like a safe distance, <laughs> mm. <laughs> to, throw, to, to throw something at this big guy, um, and then to hit a square inch, and then to unlock something in that action, eh Shannon? To unlock a response um, in that moment of, of trust in, in Yahweh, isn't it? Let me share with you some more, some of my thoughts, and then we'll get close to wrapping up. <coughs> as, I, as I read through this story, now, some, of the, some of the things that, that come out at me is that in, this, in the story of, of David and Goliath, it, it, it seems to me like God was looking for, in the story as we unpack the details, um, it becomes clear that to me that Yahweh was looking for a man of faith, not a warrior. But Saul was looking for a warrior rather than a man of faith. And so in the story, there are, there are still elements of that first lesson that we did um, two weeks ago um, of God being more interested in what's going on on the inside of us rather than the outside, like Alison was pointing at. But in the story, um, Samuel develops it a bit more and so it becomes clear that God can turn a courier um, <laughs> out on a cheese run into a warrior in an instant. He is able to do that. But to me, there's, there's a deeper lesson here. And, and I think the reason that this story has gained the popularity that it has is because it makes for an incredible motivational talk it is amazingly motivational you know it says you can overcome even the biggest challenge that you face just be brave and believe and you will conquer even if all that you have on you is a sling and and five stones and your enemy and your and your the challenge that you face is insurmountable, even though all of that is coming against you. If you believe and you act on that, you will conquer. It's an amazingly motivational story. It's you know, it could be it could be a Disney story that makes us feel warm and fuzzy afterwards, and I think that's why the world has grabbed hold of it. You know, the David and Goliath story of the of the little one versus the bigger one, more powerful one. But I don't think that's, that's what the story is actually showing us. And I think if we are honest about the story and we put ourselves as a character in the story, then we'll have to admit that we are not like David. We're actually more like Israel. We are not the ones volunteering to go out into the middle to fight. We are not the ones volunteering to make ourselves available. Rather, we are the ones standing in the background, watching, waiting for someone else to deal with the issue. And so, we are as helpless as the Israelites waiting for change. But in that moment when we recognize the fact that we are not, we're not the guy, you know, we're not the the lead character in the movie that we think we are, that rather we are more like the Israelites who are standing in the background waiting for someone else to step up for us. You know what happens in that moment? It is in that moment that God sends us a champion. And it's in that moment when God sends someone who will fight for us. And he sends Jesus. And Jesus comes... And Jesus' ways seem inadequate. They even seem weak, like just a sling and a few stones. But when we think about Jesus, we recognize that Jesus himself didn't come with armor and a sword, he didn't come with a helmet, but he came lowly. Born in a stable, riding on a donkey, socializing with fishermen, with tax collectors, hanging out with the downtrodden, the marginalized, and he allowed himself to be beaten. In his being the victor and the champion, he allowed himself to be crucified. But Jesus conquered in that way. And he still conquers today in that way. And if we put our faith in him, like the Israelites did in that moment, he will lead us into victory, like David did in this story. But then it doesn't just stop there. He also equips us to be champions like him. And he gives us his spirit. He doesn't give us a sword. He doesn't give us armor or a helmet. He gives us his spirit to come inside of us. And this enables us to become champions To bring his kingdom into spaces where other people are fearful. He enables us to step into broken situations and by the power of the presence of his Holy Spirit in us we are able to do things that seem insurmountable. We are able to do things that seem impossible. Then we are able to face the giants that we face in our lives. And so in the story of David the hero, what stands out more so than anything else is that it foreshadows for us a picture of Jesus the Messiah, the real champion, the one who overcomes, the one who would come in an unlikely way like Uber Eats or Mr. Delivery One who would come, who would be rejected by his brothers. Yet he still fights for them on their behalf.